Are you working? What kind of work do you do? All right, guys, welcome back to Sweat Equity. Uh, we got an awesome guest for you today. This is Matt Halfhill. Matt is the founder and CEO of NiceKicks.com, a legendary sneakers media publication. They've got over 10 million followers across all the major social platforms, reached 30 million people last year in 2023. And that included a visitor from every country in the world, including North Korea. So I think <laughs> to start it off, like, how'd you, how'd you get in there? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I do want to uh, clarify this 30 million each month that we're reaching. Oh, sorry. Yeah, 30 million, no, 30 million each month. Each month. Um, Golly, yeah. 360 it's, million a year. Potentially. Is, yeah. I mean, there's going to be yeah, some overlap, but, but still. Let's call it, yeah. you know, a safe 200. It, yeah. Safe <laughs> 200. 500. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> call yeah. it half a million. Take. Yeah. No, um, it, it, it really is incredible to, to see just the number of people who tune in to Nice Kicks, not just on the website, which is where we started, but across all forms of social media, which yeah. is really where so much of the growth is. Yeah, absolutely. I used to be one of them. I think Same. I told you that uh, when we, when we first met. What did we but, do wrong? You used to be? Uh, uh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, a topic that we'll talk about later is the decrease in relevance of, you know, the signature athlete today. Yeah. But back back when I was in high school, which was like 2010 to 2014, um, you know, you guys had this segment, which I'm not sure if you still do, but it's called Kicks on Court. Mm -hmm. And Kicks on Court was the only way where if you saw an NBA player had a sneaker that was not sold on Nike.com, Kicks on Court would tell you what that sneaker was called so you could look it up from there yeah. on out. And maybe, just maybe, they would drop it eventually. And so you would kind of be plugged in that way. Um, I feel like my entire childhood was Nice Kicks and Slam. Yeah, 100%. Like, like getting the Slam magazine yeah. and being Which, on NiceKicks.com. Shout out to PRC. I, I got, that's that's my dog. He owns <laughs> Slam.com. But um, yeah, man. I mean, just like unbelievable how y'all built such a big business in the sneaker world. Um, would love to kind of hear just like, about the founding story. And it sounds like you're tired of paying eBay fees and yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. So, I mean, it's, it's funny. Like when I, when I started out, it was, um, in 2002, I was working at a shoe store at the mall called athletes world in Canada. Mm. Um, and I had, was buying clearance items and selling them on eBay. Um, and it was while I was still working there, I was, you know, doing this on the side, uh, a customer walked in wearing a pair of vintage Reeboks. And I asked him like, man, where'd you get those shoes? And uh, he said, oh, I got him on eBay and like light bulb went over my head. Like, oh my gosh, he credited the platform, not the seller. Mm -hmm. And so I knew, well, if I want to build a long-term, you know, opportunity of a brand online, I'm going to have to build my own website and um, not just rely on using the marketplace of eBay. Yeah, that's crazy. So what, what were the Reeboks? Do you remember? Yeah. I don't fully remember. I, I'm like, I can't remember if they were a reverse jam or um, Twilight Zone pump. I mean, I, there's, yeah. I just, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to flex the sneaker knowledge yeah. <laughs> there, uh, which I think you nailed. Um, so, you know, you kind of built that business on the back of being, I would say a blog site. Would that be accurate? Or Yeah, I mean, 06, we launched the WordPress blog. I'd been toying with it in 05, but that's really where the growth happened. Yeah. Um, and, and what I noticed was like, I was a, a big consumer of tech blogs mm -hmm. and I loved the format. I loved the the tone. I loved the way that, you know, as a user, you got the latest news at the top. It was in chronological order. So if you, even if you didn't visit it every day, you could, you know, catch up pretty easily. Yeah. And at that time, the only way that information online was shared about sneakers was in the message board and forum format, right. which had was great because anybody could contribute, but also terrible because anybody, anybody could contribute. contribute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the way that threads worked, the way that they were multi, you know, multi pages on stuff, it was just terrible as a user experience. And there's no way a casual person could use them and stay up to date. Right. Um, I also found a lot of bad info on there. And it really hit me when I went to a, a, a local finish line at the Barton Creek Mall on a Saturday for a release. And I was going based on the information that was put on these forums and they hadn't verified the information. And the store, I was there early in the morning waiting for the shoes. Um, this is actually the Flint 13s in 2005. And the store manager was like, why, why are you here? Like, what, what, what are you doing here? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm here for the Flints. And he's like, oh, those come out next week. Yeah. And I saw like, oh my gosh, like this is like, I'm a victim of bad info here. 
Right. And I thought, okay, it, you know, there needs to be a better way that this information is gathered, collected, presented, but also verified before, yeah. you know, going up. Yeah, no doubt. And, and you were sort of the curator of verified information around sneakers. You kind of parlayed that, you know, ran the media side of it for a little bit and then actually launched a retail store here Correct. in Austin. Yep. Um, maybe talk a little bit about, about that decision and like going from the digital world into the physical world. Right. Yeah. So we, through the early days of like getting the information, right? Like I had, I befriended a lot of shop owners because they would like, it was a good way to verify info. Also too, like at that time, none of the brands really like understood what blogs were and they didn't like really think we were real. Like it was funny because (laughs) like, because we didn't have a television show, a radio program or a print magazine, they didn't consider us media. Yeah. So like it was it was really frustrating for us to try to work with PR at different brands. And they were just like, well, you're not really a thing. And mm. it's like, what the hell are you talking about? We have millions of people logging on every month. Yeah. And it actually wasn't until I opened a retail store that they that a few were like, oh, so you guys really do reach a lot of people. And it's like, okay, so a lineup of 700 people was it, but not the three or four million people a month? Like yeah. what? It was part of opening the retail store to create that effect that, that you're more official or solidified with PR and these different companies. There, there was part of it. And that yeah. actually weighed heavily into choosing to use the nice kicks name. Mm. Gotcha. There were a lot of people who said, use a different brand. Really? And cause they were like saying you should try to keep them separate. And I, there is a school of thought to that, yeah. uh, but I felt like, no, why? Yeah. Why use a different name? Like then let's you've been build the brand. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so the purpose of the retail store retail store, it was never about selling product. It was about creating an offline extension of the digital brand, a physical space people could go to and see, this is what it should feel like for sneakerheads to go and to, you know, experience something. I mean, bro, it's a must stop. Like when Thomas and I, my my co-founder at Grind, when we would come to Austin, that was a must stop for us every time, because especially being from Texas, you don't have as many kind of really high-end sneaker uh, shops like that. Us and premium goods for a long time. Right. Yeah. And yeah. and so, you know, you guys were able to provide that bespoke experience that like if you're a sneakerhead in Texas, you, you didn't have. So, right. you know, whenever we come here, it, it'd be so cool. It feels like you're in LA or New York. Right. And I also feel like it's a relationship builder with your, your top readers, like the people that are reading nice kicks consistently and visiting consistently like if you could open the retail spot that's not like and they're in austin it becomes either a the destination destination or b where they come to experience the brand versus yeah. just consuming content from e- the brand. exactly and and further to that one of the big things that we did from the very get-go was the design of the space was super important yeah, yeah. we worked with a local guy named chris swift who was just did a phenomenal job of in, of designing the space which was so small but one of the things that we did there was the stories matter to nice kicks. You know, like it's not an accident that that our logo is a speech bubble because yeah. it's about conversation and storytelling. And we had these museum type like pedestal displays that we would change out on a very regular basis. And we would pull things from our vault of collection and other little items to put together mm. to kind of tell a story. And always we try to tie them to something that was relevant at the time or relevant of an upcoming release. So people were able to get something different in our space just by walking in than they could get anywhere else. And that yeah. was that was really the big focus. So it. was the experience always getting like changed and curated based on what was happening, what was going on, games being played? We were constantly changing that's things awesome. out. And it, it, we would do things like during South by Southwest week, we did like special ones that were more geared towards that, uh, towards that crowd. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like we even got it down to like, this is interactive week. So let's get our star, some of our star Wars or some other like, you know, tech related product um, in the display. And then it was like, when it con- came time to music, it was like, oh no, no, now we're going to do like shoes that were done by DJs or yeah. has, have some musical tie to it. Yeah, so that's awesome. And so, you know, Ultimately, you did decide to move on from the retail yes. side of things yep. and uh, kind of focus more so on the media side. Exactly. Is there anything you can share about that decision? Uh, maybe for like some young people looking to do something similar, go from media to retail? Yeah. I mean, I would say that while brands were first on very much on board with us having a retail store, there was a time that I think a lot of individuals at some organizations did not understand um, and they had 
you know, big policies that had changed. Um, and they wanted to impose rules on that restricted our blog, uh, just because we had one physical store. Really? And so we had the same rules that Foot Locker would kind of thing. Oh, and God. it's like, it, there was, I think there was a misunderstanding, a disconnect. Ultimately, I, I, I really wanted to be unrestricted to tell stories, tell them in our way. Yeah. And um, not have to balance this thing of like, we're telling a story this way, then this other division of this company doesn't want us to do something. And yeah. so it was just like, no, just make it easy. Just stick to media. That is what we love the most. We love storytelling. We actually work with all of these brands. Um, and, you know, like I, I, I can't begin to tell you how much less stressful running a media group is than uh, running a brick and mortar retail yeah, operation. Definitely. And so, you know, continue with that theme. So you started as a blog and then mm -hmm. we're kind of a pioneer in that space, definitely, at least in the sneaker world. Um, but now you're sort of shifting your thoughts on, you know, what that media company really looks like in the shape that it takes online, mm -hmm. maybe shifting a little bit away from the blog format towards a new format. Just like maybe talk about how y'all are transitioning to a new format of the business yeah, going forward. For sure. So in 2006, when we had launched the blog, like we had the primary source of revenue was the Google pay-per-click ads. I don't know if you remember those. Oh yeah. So we had Google pay-per-click, like pre-banners kind of thing. Um, and then we worked with, uh, we actually were the first site to join Complex Media's like digital network um, yeah. in 2007. And that that brought in a, new, a different type of ad product, which was the banner ad. Mm -hmm. And then the full site takeovers and all that kind of stuff. Then what kind of spun from there was custom content um, and other types of creative uh, yeah. projects. We do a lot of custom content and creative projects to this day. Yeah. Uh, and But a lot, not as many are happening on the website. So really the channel where they're happening, that's what's been the biggest shift because really the, there's less, there are fewer eyeballs on web than in the past. Like now it's very much on social, especially the, the, the type, the, the demographic that the advertisers and the brands want to reach. Yeah. So the blog was the medium. Nicekicks.com was the medium. What was the verb? Storytelling. So the verb has not changed. We're still storytelling. But the venue has changed. You know, it's gone from nicekicks.com to places where it's at nicekicks, whether that's mm. on nicekicks on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, doing a little bit with TikTok, YouTube. And then we also have the app, SMS, other types of channels that we communicate through. But since the web has really shifted to where there's less desire to consume stories through web, We've kind of changed that tool to be much more about helping consumers be able to purchase products and helping them find whatever shoe it is that they're looking for. Um, so that's that's like the utility has demand has changed. I love this idea that you just talked about of transitioning from like the domain. The new domain is your at handle. Yeah. Sure. And like that is now your new website. That is now your your new way of getting that's information out there. Yeah. And unlike a website, though, it has mass like brand awareness uh, potential yep um what are you doing on like the the side of youtube and like is there a strategy that you're now developing of okay we did this on web this is now our approach um to what we're doing on social what we're doing on youtube pods like and and kind of recreating that world for yourself yeah so we had done youtube very early like or not super early but at least for our space pretty early yeah um and we had had a couple shows on there. We actually did a kicks on court show um, weekly. And then we had um, a series by uh, George that did uh, Soul Access, where you go into locker rooms with different teams to kind of get a tour of that. You can see a lot of player exclusives. Um, and then Sneak Peek was our big franchise product. And then we did 50 some episodes of, of Sneak Peek. Um, we've just relaunched that. We've, we relaunched that recently as a social first. But yeah. we have now started doing long form versions of sneak peek that are going onto YouTube. Yeah. Our strategy with YouTube is that we will probably create specific products for YouTube. The days of just like taking one and, and like translating it to multiple channels, it's really tough to do yeah. um, because certain things work really well on certain channels, primarily because of the design of that channel. Just based for, you know, just to take, for example, the on video front, it's not just the way, the shape and size, but it's like the flow of the video has to be different. What the consumers on those platforms are looking for is different as well. Yeah. So. I mean, there's, there's expected behaviors, 
you know, there's, there's little cues across the different platforms that kind of make them unique to each other. And I think making your brand, you know, position on each channel to actually be easily absorbed by that viewer is, exactly. is really important because otherwise there's so much other things trying to get their attention. Yes. And, and just, you know, swiping through has, has never been easier. I also think about like this idea of how are you turning your own YouTube channel into your own like Netflix, where the consumer is coming to your channel and, and uh, yeah, and like the behavior is like Netflix because they're coming to you knowing you have five shows, 10 different shows like you're talking about. Someone that does a really good job at this is James Gordon. Mm-hmm. Like he has carpool karaoke. He is like trying different foods. Like he has 10, 15, 20 different shows. And because of that, you go to his channel knowing like he's dropping an episode Monday, Tuesday, but they're all different things that you can, that you can consume. And if you love him, then you're going to, you know, you're going to consume that content. Is that kind of how you're thinking about it? Is like, you're using it almost as you're hosting many different shows. We, we will eventually get to that. I think a better parallel for us would be some kind of the model of like what donut media has done with automobiles. Again, I think the difference between us and say a Corbin is that a lot of YouTube is personality and name driven off yeah. of an individual we are, we're a publishing brand. So we have like, we have to play a little bit differently. Of course the host matters a lot, but I don't think it would be the best decision, especially for a company like us. We would be so limited if we had just one primary host that has to be the one size fits all for everything. There's an Everclear song, pretty mid called everything to everyone. And it's like, (laughs) not only is that song just kind of mediocre, it's a terrible strategy for brand as well as as content. You can't make everything for everyone. It's gotta be more focused. Um, Speaking of mid, how about these recent signature sneakers? (laughs) Coming out of every athlete in the last like three years, it feels like we haven't had a strong release. I mean, you know, D book is beef or Devin Booker uh, is beefing with Nike about you know, the execution of his release, John Morant, obviously torpedoes his entire, mm-hmm. you know, release of the job one Ant gets in trouble with the, mm-hmm. you know, send a video meme there for a bit. I mean, so, you know, I think something that we've, we've kind of discussed before was, you know, the signature athlete has never been more, I guess, uh, widespread mm-hmm. and less relevant. Yeah. And so and I'd love to kind of get your two cents on that. Yeah. I mean, I think that we've had some unfortunate things happen in the signature shoe space for in the past, specifically one calendar or two calendar years. Um, I think of like Nike had two crises on their hands with signature athletes. Like they had things, the drama that was happening with Kyrie and then with John Morant. Mm. Unfortunately for Nike in both situations, there's a lot of stuff that was like off court um, type of stuff, which this is also kind of the, Part, this is one of the big challenges you have of doing business with endorsed individuals in 2024, which is social media and stuff that happens outside of, you know, the, the profession. Both of these incidents that they would not have happened during the Jordan era. They just couldn't have. They couldn't. Yeah. No. They legitimately just couldn't have. No, yeah. you wouldn't have a cell phone that you could just tweet. Because <laughs> he's, like, he's going to Vegas, he's gambling. Yeah. and he's taking the helicopter it, you know, from Atlantic City. It comes out 20 years later kind of thing on, yeah. on the last dance. Like, yeah. That's the first time we, we hear about it, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I think like that has been what has has had a huge impact for for brands. I mean, I, there's the blessing and curse of it. Like, yeah, the blessing is that, you know, if you have a player that has a huge off-court personality, you have a personality that is selling things beyond what they do on court. I think LaMelo Ball is a great example of that. LaMelo Ball was a huge star far before the NBA, thanks to social media and marketing. Yeah, and it almost, I I wonder if it cannibalizes their marketability. I I think about guys, you know, if I'm Jason Tatum, I'm never doing anything that could risk my endorsements, you know? And I think it almost makes these guys have less personality because the camera's always on them, because there is this opportunity that it could blow up with a scandal at any I, time. I, I, I've said it a million times. I would hate to be a start in today's world. Yeah. I, you, you have no privacy yeah. at, at all. You, right. you just don't. Um, and the thing we have to remember too is that a lot of these guys are young, like really kids. I mean, I'm 39 now, so everybody under 30 is a kid now <laughs> to me. But like, you know, if you're in your early 20s and you're in the NBA, yeah. And, and a star, you have had cameras around you pretty much since you were a teenager right. or at least mid-teen. So I, I just, I, I don't envy their position. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I mean, you just think about like the ways, you know, that they're even getting caught up, right? It's like for Anthony Eberts, it's, it's screenshots of his texts mm -hmm. leaking to Twitter mm -hmm. and going viral with Jod's screenshots of an IG live, you know, Instagram live thing where like right. there's 300 viewers on the Instagram live, mm -hmm. you know, it shouldn't, it's not reaching a lot of people because that one person in that live knew that it was Jod, knew that he was compromised, you know, it gets shared, goes like crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but is there any way that, you know, what, what, how do we fix it? Like, how do we get these signature athletes, you know, their shoes to kind of be more relevant again? I think that the, I wouldn't say that they, they're not, they're just not as relevant as they once were to the overall pie. Right. They're still relevant. Just not like the, it's not what is driving everything in the market. Like, like Michael Jordan sold running shoes. Yeah. Right. He yeah. sold running shoes because it had the same logo on that running shoe as was on his shoes kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. We just don't like that type of influence isn't there as much as it once was. So what it is, is that you also just have far more touch points that a consumer has with a brand and across all of interests and sports and everything like that. I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we will go back to the idea of one or two signature guys can define an entire brand. Really? I just don't yeah. think we're going to get to that. Yeah. It, it's a very, it's not just that it's crowded. It's just a competitive market space and it's matured. You know, do you, do you think there's anything to uh, less affinity between fans and these athletes as well? Well, I think, yeah, I do think that there's less affinity towards that. I think that everybody kind of has had their affinity spread across so many things. You know, like it used to be really easy to see what somebody was was into. Like they, you know, they would eat, sleep, breathe their local baseball team or basketball team. And it was everything about that team they studied the ins and outs of. People have more, they, they've never had more opportunity to become so interested in so many things. So as a company, it's how do you get yourself in, you know, in the right position with as many different touch points as the consumer can possibly yeah, have. I mean, and that was going to be my next question is as a media company, you know, operator, like how are you looking at capturing that attention in 2024 and beyond? I mean, for us, we have to stay true to ourselves. Like, you know, it, it, you can quickly go down the rabbit hole and try to chase too many things. And I think what's best is to be very focused as to like what matters most to your brand, uh, what is most relevant to be covering. Um, and really sticking to that yeah. Um, because yeah, there, there are a million different ways that one could chase and, you know, make sneakers relevant too, you know? Right. Going back to kind of the death of the signature athlete or not signature athlete, but the, the sneaker, do you think there's a shift where almost like the designer now or the designer in culture, somebody like Jerry Lorenzo or mm -hmm. Kanye is bigger than the athlete and they have more influence on a drop? Cause like, I'm oh, thinking yeah. about like, you saw it with Kanye and Adidas. You see it with Jerry Lorenzo, now Adidas. You see it with uh, Pharrell and Louis Vuitton. Would you do something where you're bringing in one of those designers to do a collab with Jason Tatum or John Morant? Because like, nobody's going to the club and wearing LeBrons, right? No. Like, but they'll never wear have. the Travis Scott's. You have? <laughs> no, 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 I'm saying they never were. <laughs> oh, <laughs> do you think there's some, something to do there where like, you could almost like, bridge these two together and they could piggyback off each other for these, for these drops and kind of make them bigger. Yeah. So there are, there are three main chapters, I think, in the history of namesake marketing and in, in footwear. The yeah. first one was athlete that the, the first signet, like the first professional athlete to have a, to have a to have namesake deal was Canadian badminton player named Jack Purcell. Yeah. And he had Jack. the BF Goodrich. Yeah. And I think this was 1920s, but it really, really took off with, Michael Jordan, 1985, because that was the first time where it was a signature athlete, where it wasn't just their name attached to a product or to a marketing campaign, but like Nike created an emotion and a brand around the athlete and his products. Yeah. Um, that was very different from all that had done before. A lot of them were namesake endorsement deals than creating a brand within around their athlete. The second phase, in, is where I think the influence of pop culture and entertainment. Mm. So I think of like the example of, um, you know, the Air Force One. I didn't grow up in an area where that had much in terms of Air Force Ones. I grew up in Fresno, California. Um, I didn't know the name of the shoe offhand, 
but I knew what was that white shoe that I saw Jay-Z always yeah. wear in, in the Rockaware ads yeah. or that I saw other hip hop guys wearing. I knew what that white shoe was. And as a teenager, I was, in, I was, I liked that shoe because of those individuals yeah. wearing the shoes, not because Moses Malone wore them and won a championship in the eighties. Cause it was a basketball shoe, but like it, it was exactly it never even got marketed because it took off in pop culture, it, like rap culture and all exactly. that. Exactly. So we saw then in the two thousands, S doc Carter and Reebok. And, um, and that was honestly Reebok went after entertainment when they couldn't land LeBron. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they went, um, they went after they got uh, Jay-Z and did the S. Doc Carter and then G units right after. Mm -hmm. And that was a really good move for them as a company, but it also really created this new chapter that we then saw just explode when with Kanye West. Cause yeah. I even go back to Michael Jordan and they leveraged Spike Lee for that, right? Like yeah. they leveraged Spike Lee and what he was doing in filmmaking well, to help elevate that drop. Well, that's what Nike, does better than anybody is that they create stories yeah. around the product. So who better to tap yeah. than a movie maker? Yeah. Yeah. So um exactly. but the so it's the second chapter entertainment. Third, I think is the is the designer themselves. Mm, Where cool. and you see people like Rest in Peace Virgil Abloh yeah. was one of those individuals. Um where people were following the artist and it didn't matter what the brand was. It didn't even matter what the product was. They were fans of the artist and yeah. their vision. So I think of Virgil Abloh, uh, Pharrell Williams, uh, Jerry Lorenzo, yeah. Salehi Bembury. Like these are individuals who are able to create very, you know, different products and with different types of brands, different categories. And they have, they are a brand in and to themselves based on their design. And that's where I think like, imagine Devin Booker and Jerry Lorenzo getting to work on the collab. Yeah. That drop would be so much, so much better. Would crush. Yeah. Versus it just being D book and Nike. And then you have Nike as the engine telling the stories behind something like yeah, that. Like, mm -hmm. like you gotta give the original creator, like Lorenzo, and then D book being the athlete, like you gotta give them the resources that yeah. Nike has at their disposal to then tell that story. But they 100%. need the creative freedom. But on that note, I think what has been amiss by a lot of brands recently is that I think they could do more to tell the stories behind the design of a lot of the product yeah, um, by the actual artists. So I think of like mm -hmm. what has been a lot, what has provided a lot of longevity to the retro Jordan line has been the storytelling and visible presence of Tinker Hatfield. Yeah. I think that has done so much for um, the, the long-term legacy of, of uh, the Jordan. You just think about that too is, you know, with Tinker, I, I know that name. And as, as a, you know, I'm into sneakers, but I'm not so deep into it that I'm looking into the designer of every shoe, but you know, it, you almost passively know that he was the guy who invented Jordans. Yeah. Like, and it, I, I do think, you know, people want, people are seeking more meaning and authenticity in their products these days. And a lot of shoe companies could probably do well to incorporate that. Yeah. One that just, you know, every time it cracks me up that this didn't work. But man, LeVar Ball was a visionary, huh? I mean, <laughs> Big Baller brand was the best idea, most forward-thinking idea with the worst execution of so, all time. I, it, it, look, to have success in this space, I, I you know, I appropriate um, Phil Jackson's triangle offense. Yeah. What you need <laughs> is a, you need three primary things, right? Yeah. Number one, you need good product. Yeah. Number two, you need a really good um, go-to-market strategy and marketing element around it. The other thing that you need is you need some, you need good um, design or, or you, sorry, you need good innovation. And the thing that LeVar had was he was really strong on the market and the story, but where he fell short was didn't have innovation, yeah. didn't have a good product. Yeah. Yeah. And I almost wonder if he was betting on his innovation being the kind of full integrated distribution of we own the brand, our athletes are telling the story, all of that kind of, we own the media, you know, right. they had the reality TV show, which was generating, they were getting paid to generate millions of impressions on their brand. Correct. Um, which is insane, right? I mean, mm -hmm. but to your point, you know, once they lose the narrative, 
and Lonzo's shoes are breaking, you know, every other summer league game, it seemed like. Right. Um, right. You can't win without a good product. No, it, it really does start and end with product. It has yeah. to be a good shoe. And so speaking of product, you know, last time you came into the office, you came in some pretty fire 3D printed uh, shoes. Yes, I did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, with that, with that dynamic kind of arising, the, mm-hmm. the barrier of entry having never been smaller to create a quality product, do you think that will eventually disrupt a lot of these big players? Big time. I think it will in specific categories. You know, the 3D, at least the current way the current tech is right now, you're not able to create anything performance wise um, at this point that, that could easily change. But like yeah. at this point, no. Um, what about the Adidas like runners that they just dropped? Like they just made like I think their first stab at a performance shoe. Really? Yeah, it's like a. Are you talking about the 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 Ford WD? I don't. Oh no, know that's any. that. Yeah, that that one's been out. That's the uh, the forward. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That one's. I don't quote me. I don't believe that's actually a three D printed uh, midsole. But okay. um, yeah. Um, but the uh, they do have some innovation on running. That's yeah. insane. Like they have shoes that are banned. They have like you can't springs. compete in them. It, it wow. Literally has like springs yeah. in them. It's yeah, crazy. I actually just saw a guy here in Austin did a. Um, he did a test to see, and I can't, I think he like shaved like 15 seconds off his mile time wow. by wearing these shoes that are banned, which I mean, I, when I saw that they were banned, I'm like, how is Adidas not like really leaned into this? Yeah. Like it's the Michael Jordan story, like 2.0, like, yeah, yeah. I you mean, know, that's, that's literally how APL started. Yeah. You know, APL is a brand out of LA and, and yeah. their, their initial marketing was our shoes make you jump higher. So we got banned by the NBA. Yeah. So naturally everyone's like, <laughs> I need that yeah i'm wearing these in one game <laughs> yeah. Yeah. apl's paying all my they are, fines they're not banned in texas uil basketball yeah no. uh, <laughs> i still couldn't dunk though okay so 3d printing can change it what are some other ways that nike is getting disrupted right now well i think that Nike's getting disrupted and others it's not just nike it's other big players like in the running category there is an insane amount of innovation happening mm, right by, yeah. by smaller groups um it's it's insane how in just like five or six years, how much you've seen just two brands, Hoka and um, On, yeah, take explode. market share and explode. 100%. Um, there's so much innovation happening in that space. Right now, the big guys need to be tripling, quadrupling down on innovation. I think that it, part of it has to do with the pandemic. You know, like there, when you don't have people who can go into offices, it's much harder to create and innovate new product. Mm. Um, but I think that there is, um, there needs much more innovation to be done. Um, that's really, when I see that swoosh, like something that I think of when I see it is innovation. Yeah. And I don't feel that in the past couple of years, we've gotten what we used to get out of, out of that. I don't, um, I don't feel like I see anyone wearing Nikes running anymore. It's, (laughs) I still do. (laughs) Yeah. But that's because I feel like I have such an attachment to Nike that. I don't know if that'll ever, they have to do something really fucked up for me to detach myself from Nike and not want to wear Nike. Yeah. The, the Alpha Fly 3 is a really good shoe. Yeah. I got those. And then I also have a Vaporfly 3. I have the Vaporflies. Yeah. It's a, it's it's a, a really, good shoe. It's a good shoe. But I hear what you're saying. You Right now, what you do see is you see so many brands on, on people's feet. Yeah. Um, and running brands really, you know, like running specific brands, having a good time in that space. Yeah, it's, uh, and I'm on, I'm even talking about, it seems like run clubs have, you know, exploded yep, kind totally. of in popularity here. And, and I see just without even trying, you know, three of them congregate like right by where my apartment is here in Austin. Yeah. And so I'm always just kind of looking at their shoes and looking at like what they're, what's on their feet. And it does seem like Hoka, Salcone, Brooks, mm-hmm. um, you know, on obviously like are really dominating that space. Yeah. But just those run club spaces. And I, I think it might be kind of an interesting point to what you said, which is, you know, I still see Nikes all the time is you're in a different sort of yeah. sports community than me. Like you're seeing like CrossFitters and people that are kind of like more performance training. And I know well, you do a lot of the high rock stuff. Yeah. For CrossFit, I, there's a, another brand. There's two brands that are like blowing up. The first one's Rad Global. Yep. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Yes. And they take like a really good approach of their drops and almost treating it like streetwear and street, uh, mm-hmm. like luxury fashion um, with what they're doing and, and their branding style. They've done a phenomenal job. The other's noble, but I don't think they're, ca- they're at the level of a rad right now. And like rad's younger than them, but they've 
taking some of the top players in the game, but they're also going into running now too. I'm sure you've yep. seen seen them. But quick aside, uh, did you see the you saw the news today about Tom Brady and Noble? Yeah, Huge. about merging. Yeah, yeah, that's. What are your thoughts on that? I have to read more on the details yeah. of it. Um, I don't. I don't. Never really saw Tom Brady's brand much. I mean, yeah. I, I've been familiar with Noble for quite a while. Yeah. Um, the thing that Noble had was they had this really good strength in, in CrossFit. Yeah. But, and like this really intense, like strength training, they didn't have a lot outside of that. Yeah. Which is interesting that they would turn to Tom Brady, who's kind of like a, you know, plant-based king. I yeah. I, well, I mean, but also the guy who's the most, has more hardware than any pro athlete of a major sport. So yeah, I mean, exactly. like you're getting some attachment to a really big name with that. Um, I think that I, I would, I'd have to see the numbers. I don't think that they're doing an exceptional job in the women's business compared yeah. to a lot of other. Um, Interesting. I also yeah. think that they're trying to expand past CrossFit. They've been known oh, as a CrossFit 100%. shoe. They sponsored the, the, or, it's now the Noble CrossFit Games, but last year they were the sponsor of the the Combine. Yes, that, I was huge. just going to bring that up. Yeah, that is a huge move. And then now it's for your partner to be yeah, like Tom writing, Brady. Writing like, was on the wall a little bit there. Well, I think yeah. When I saw the Tom Brady news, I was like, oh, we're going to see yes. a lot more football. Yes, uh, and they uh, kind of have a sick that. logo that bull with thing. the bull. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So what's crazy about Noble is, uh, do you know the guy who bought Noble? Mm -mm. His name's Mike Repole. Mm -hmm. So. He actually was the founder of Vitamin Water. Interesting. And then not only did he, he sold Vitamin Water for a few billion. And then, so, you know, what does any good entrepreneur do once they sell it? Uh, they just create it again. And yeah. then he founded <laughs> Body Armor, yep. actually, and sold, sold that. And then um, I remember because we were doing some research for the pod back in the day about like, what are some founders that, you know, had a really successful outcome and then you know, what can we learn from the next thing that they want to pursue? And so when I was looking up Repole, he, you know, created kind of this differentiated, like healthy Gatorade twice, mm -hmm. pretty much. And then, okay, what does he look at now? He buys a majority stake in Noble and proceeds to kind of invest in this CrossFit brand, which is for the alternative professional athlete. Mm -hmm. And it's just interesting. Now they got Tom Brady, like they're probably about to make a real push here. Yeah, I think that they have they have an opportunity to do do something big with that for sure. Yeah, but I think going back to your point, where I think they lack is innovation. Their product has been standstill for for years. Like I don't think it's changed much. No, Whereas, I mean it, there's there's not a ton of in, there's not a lot of to innovate in like workout wear. I mean, you can make the clothes yeah. more breathable. You can get some different cuts. But then when it comes to footwear and CrossFit, like you're not going to create a new revolutionary style of cushioning for a CrossFit shoe. You yeah. want the opposite of that. You want as close to the ground and with different types of flexibility as you can get. Um, so I think like they're the way they are going to have to push innovation is they're going to have to get outside of that space into some other sports, which I think they can. I mean, I think they could go into cleats and yeah. do well. I mean, they really, I think of like where Noble is, is very similar, probably actually ahead of where Under Armour was in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. So for them to all of a sudden become, you know, a cleat maker wouldn't be that difficult. And I could see easily, um, you know, teenage boys who are the biggest buyer of football cleats. Um, yeah signing into that brand. Yeah. And I mean, Tom Brady kind of, you know, he's the closest thing football has to Jordan. Um, but he yeah. never really turned it into that, you know, brand that exactly. people were wearing. I mean, he had Brady brand and, you know, he's always wearing Under Armour, mm -hmm. but, you know, Nike's the dominant player in that space. It's not even close. Right. Um, that'd be fascinating to see if they really start to turn it into the footwear side. How do you think the commerce, I, I'm switching gears, sorry, but like, yeah. how do you, how do you think commerce is switching for a media brand or monetizing is switching for a media brand and ongoing? Well, I can tell you a list of a bunch of media outlets that didn't figure that one out. Yeah. <laughs> who have a, have a bunch of layoffs happening. Yeah. Um, you know, the traditional model with, with media is attention and you yeah. leverage against that attention with sponsorship. Yeah. And it's like, okay, we're going to put your brand in front of these eyeballs. And on television, it was the 30 second ad spot. Well, people just don't watch as much TV anymore. First, the DVR happened so I could skip through the commercials so I could get my content for my monthly subscription and without seeing the ads. Um, now people don't even want to do that. They just want the clips, right? Yeah. Getting those clips on social media. And even now, like a lot of the ads that are served on social, people just 
flip and scroll right past them. It's not like only YouTube is the only platform where like you are forced to see at yeah. least part of this. At ad. least five seconds. Yeah, five <laughs> seconds. You yeah. are you're gonna have to see this logo yeah. from Liberty Mutual. 100%. Um, <laughs> but no, um, I think that media platforms need to think about themselves more of that. You know, they need to be thinking about having a they need to, I think, do more work on business development of like developing some of the products or partnering with companies that are that are a natural fit to yeah. integrate into their businesses. I think that's that's what is going to be the future for a lot of a lot of media outlets. So like roll roll call there, you know, New York Times, no, not doing it well. Like better than others. Yeah. But yeah, not 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 super great. Um, you know, they rely they do a lot of revenue through their through their subscription model. Um, you know, the people pay for the digital um, subscription to the New York Times, and they have the other products like their cooking and yeah. their. Are there any media stuff. companies that you think are really executing on this well <laughs> right now? Mm. And would you consider some of these like day and age creators now media companies versus just being like a, a large creator? Because they could be one of the ones that are doing it well as well. Yeah. I think that you have some independent creators or individuals that they're not really an individual they have huge yeah, teams they're just around too them. big yeah i mean like i think of you know like what the paul brothers have done is a yeah. good example of it you know they had the maverick brand forever ago right like that yeah. was one of their first like the products that they're wearing it's not someone else's product it's their own yeah their own brand um and i think that a lot of have integrated in other products or projects that they're that they have equity in to organically push now I will say, I don't, I think that there is a, there is a, an unfortunate thing that there's not as many disclosures probably being made to audiences as to what is paid for placement or what placement these people have a vested interest in. Yeah. Um, you know, we saw that happen in the crypto space, how many creators had their own token yeah. or they were paid to, to shill a token kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So speaking of like brands that are like executing really well in today's day and age, like, are there any sneaker brands that you think are actually adapting to kind of where consumers are and like what marketing looks like these days? Cause it seems like, you know, Nike may have, they've obviously, I don't know, I would say Nike's peaked and now they're either plateauing or slightly declining, but mm -hmm. what are some brands that are kind of up and coming and like doing it right these days? Um, Tracksmith. Oh Ooh. yeah. By Jordan Rogers, by any chance. I I've been on a Tracksmith, uh, just I saw he just right talked now. about it. I was talking with somebody about it like la last week and then I saw he just did a video. I just about saved it. so much of their content. They're like doing the Nike, kind of like a Nike play. Like they're specifically on the content, like the stories that they're telling. These guys are so dope. But scroll like two months down and it's a completely different brand than, yeah. than what you'll see on social now, which is really? super interesting. Yeah. Really? I, I think Tracksmith is doing is yeah. doing one of the best jobs in, in marketing and storytelling. Yes. Um, you go onto their website, go onto their social media, yeah. and they are doing what classic Nike did. Yes. It told a story. It made you feel an emotion. Yes. And their brand revolved around that. There's a video that I watched probably 20 times this weekend of this girl running in the snow, and she has like just ice on her face, and she's just trekking through. They have a beautiful, like I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. Yeah. Beautiful voiceover, like totally written. And this isn't, you know, some Goggins like voiceover of her running. Yeah. Like they're telling these stories. There's no product placements, but I literally started shopping just because of these little 15 second videos. Yep. And I've, you know what I mean? Like this is the first time I've seen Tracksmith uh, up mm -hmm. until this point. And I felt that way just because of these little 15 second videos. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally about to cop one of these on the podcast. Yeah. Right now. Yeah. yeah. On the podcast. Straight up. Live on the podcast. Yeah. They are doing it. And they have a distinct design that is true to who they are. Like yeah. they're a Northeast running brand. Yeah. And they have this, you know, Ivy League varsity look. Yes. Like it yeah. just, Mm, like they, sporty and rich a yeah, little bit. Yeah, like that yeah, kind that, of vibe. That luxury for, nostalgia yeah. is, yep. is very in right now. Yep. Any other any other brands you're thinking about? I think New Balance has been doing from the majors. Yeah. I think New Balance has been doing such an exceptional job in the yeah. past several years. Yeah. And it's not just the storytelling, it's the product as well. And it's across so many categories. Yeah. Like they are, I, I've never seen New Balance do as well as. Yeah, as they are right now, like it—it it really is so different 
Like I, if you told me 10 years ago, this is where New Balance would be today, I'd say, hell no, no chance. And I feel like they somehow got away from, they were part of meme culture. Like you were yeah. a dad, oh. right? Like if you wore New Balances. But and then dad shoes also got pretty sick recently. But, and they, they, but they were smart to lean into yes, that. Yes, exactly. They leaned into that, but while they were also leaning into that, they were, they were going in another direction with their creative projects. Yeah. And into baseball and basketball in yes. a really heavy way. Yeah. And then they they really actually kind of, there was like this beautiful thing, this juxtaposition of the, they were leaning into the dad shoe while also saying, we're not just a dad shoe. I the feel same like time. they converted the dad shoe to now it was like this slow transition from dad shoe to you're the cool dad, right? Yeah. Like, the, and that happened with partnering with Amelie on Dior and like these mm -hmm. other brands to create this feeling of, this is a luxury shoe now. Like this goes with some of your best fits. Yeah. yeah. And now- I mean, I bought my first pair of New Balances. I yeah. would have never bought a pair of New Balances, ten, like you're saying, mm -hmm. 10 years ago. It would have right. never been on the radar. Yeah. No, and I, now, like, I feel it's going to Cali with us. Like, it's, it's part of the fit. Like, I have to take it. No, I, I love my New Balances, but I will say I threw them out once Oren just started clowning me for them. <laughs> I mean, he, he's got, like, the, the Orange County dad aesthetic on point. I, I just, I couldn't take it. Yeah. I had to get rid of them. One of the things I'm I'm super interested in is, like, do you know the history of sneaker drops? How did we get here and was it always what we see now or was it i mean was it different night you know 1990 to early 2000s yeah well i mean in in the 80s they didn't have the sneakers app so yeah, things yeah. were a little <laughs> bit different then um the way that i've known sneaker releases pretty much my entire purchasing life was there was a date that was set that they were first available at the mall store kind of thing and you'd go there and, and you'd get them. Yeah. And there were oftentimes, you know, pretty long lines for certain shoes. Um, there weren't, not a lot of shoes commanded that kind of demand. Yeah. Um, but when we were studying it, we found that it was in 1997, it was, it was published, it was 97 or 98. Um, it was towards the end of Michael's second run in, yeah. in Chicago. Um, and they had made the conscious decision to make the release on a Saturday. And it was because they didn't want kids skipping school to go get the shoes. Mm. And I had heard, this was actually from a friend of mine who had a sneaker shop in, in Houston, Teresa Walden. She told me, because she had bought the Black Cement 3s when they first came out in 1988. And she had said that they dropped on a Monday. And she said it was that the Bulls had played NBA on NBC the day before on Sunday, wow. and then the shoes came out on Monday. Now, whether that was like a nationwide thing, I'm not sure, but she said at least there in Houston at that time, a lot of the times that the Jordans were first available was the day after NBA on NBC. But I don't have anything written to confirm it, but yeah, like that, yeah. you know, that's one of those theories. I mean, it feels but, like it should be true. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there were a lot of times that it, really the shoes, they didn't have releases. It just got put out there. Yeah. Um, release dates on Air Force Ones didn't start till like 2007. Yeah. Before that, every calendar would say like the first of whatever month because they were considered like the April delivery or the May delivery or the June delivery, which it, it was like no retailer was forced to hold it until a certain date. So as soon as they came in, okay, cool. Let's just go put it on the wall and sell it. That's crazy though, that matching up with like similar, something that you said before the pod you know, now we're watching 20, 20 different games at a time mm -hmm. versus back then, you know, everybody's watching that Bulls game. Right. And then it's going to the drop and like that. And that probably has to do something with this feeling of Devin Booker doesn't have as much love as a Michael Jordan because the whole world was watching Michael Jordan. Does yeah. that play into what's I think, happening I, now? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that, um, with respect to Michael and NBA and at maybe that time. Maybe not the best example. No, but I mean, I think like <laughs> what was different about that time is that you had far fewer channels, right? Yeah. You also had far fewer games that were available nationwide. So it was one, it was a, it was a spectacle. Like, you know, that you, if you were a basketball fan, NBA on NBC on Sunday was very similar to like Monday night football for a football fan. Yeah. It was like appointment television. Exactly. Yeah. So and that also was not just a place where the players were. That was also a really great place. If you are a marketer, to talk to that audience. And that's where like the best Jordan commercial of all time were running against sports and running against telev network television in that era, yeah. where you had 30 second mini stories put together by Spike Lee mm. about, you know, is it the shoes? And you don't see that now. No, you don't. You well, don't see that. You don't. But I mean, it's kind of like, I remember a line my brother had 
challenged me with years ago. He's like, your blog is going to be nothing more than a print magazine in a few years. Mm. Like start thinking about what's next. Same thing goes for a commercial spot today. A 30 second ad, unless it's running during Super Bowl. Yeah. yeah. Who's seeing it? Yeah, for sure. It's not, there's just not as much of an uh, available I mean, would audience. You, what would you do? Would you run ads like in the areas that that game is playing, but on social during a game or something? Because like during a commercial, they're going to social. Like what, what do you think the fix is there? Well, I think that the way you're going to get people, it's not just about the impressions it's, <laughs> that you get by running it on social. You got to make sure that impression is actually making an, an impression, impression. For sure. Yeah. So you need to create content that is going to capture that audience and hold them to hear the message or see the story. And so that means on each platform, you're going to have to do something differently. Yeah. But what I do kind of like, like, miss is the idea that there was um the ability to look back at ads and find them i find that you know like i can find old ads of every pretty much barkley griffey uh penny jordan ad i can find them all and even with reebok as well and adidas but like in today's world where so much is made just for digital once that campaign runs unless somebody at an ad agency keeps a copy and throws it up on a Vimeo or on some drive, like it's kind of just gone. Yeah. Like I, there was a social campaign that Nike and Foot Locker did with Kyrie a couple of years ago. I tried finding it. I'm like, I can't find this video. It was made for social, ran on social. About the only thing I could hope for is that if they posted it on their account, I'd have to scroll back yeah. several years and that's if it's still up there. Yeah. So yeah, it's almost like the meaning of it is so much harder to derive these days you know, because there's so much overwhelming people at all times versus, you know, when you saw an iconic ad on, you know, the once a week NBA on NBC on Sundays, mm-hmm. you're like, it makes such an impression to you because you almost have to, like, you have to capture that moment in your head you, or else it's gone. You do. And I think, I think right can't now, just look it up. I think that like, there's also, we're getting that point. Like, I think we hit peak social recently. Mm. I think that we're starting to hit the peak of influence through digital only. I think that right now I've noticed just at least with myself out of home, a good out of home ad. Yeah. Far more impactful yeah. than yeah. ever. Yeah. And I think it really ha- is that I'm not as likely to be distracted. Yeah. So for sure. I also think there's just a big difference uh, what you were talking about with the the ads that are getting put out now, it's more of a volume play versus an impact play. Right. There are some ads that Nike puts out and the impact is there. And Colin Kaepernick one was an example. That is one I could still search and go find and that was three years ago or something. But in between maybe Colin Kaepernick and till now, I can't recall another Nike ad. Like another real other than maybe this this most recent that's mamba like that's one of the most recent ones that i feel like mm-hmm. i remember i remember the whole but that's still playing into nike's challenge right now yeah. is that they can only live off of retro stuff like kobe is not one of their signature athletes anymore yeah and their most successful ad was from you know his brand yeah, like, yeah. i mean it seems like but they they did this right like they, there used to be the pressure of going viral was not like this algorithmically driven thing. It was more of a grassroots thing. Like mm-hmm. you think about the Uncle Drew stuff, like the the KPI for going viral used to be shareability, yeah. not boost by the algorithm. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that has really changed the incentive structure as well when they're making content is, you know, it used to be so share, like you have to, you used to have to share it because I, I had to be like, yo, Alex, did you see that Uncle Drew stuff? It was like super entertaining. Mm-hmm. And now you know, it's all about the hook and retention and like keeping someone on your 45 second short form video. And to your point earlier, it's just harder to tell a really compelling story Mm -hmm. in that short of a time frame. Is this one of those moments where you think you should zig when everyone's zagging, where if everybody's doing these retention driven videos, go and create more just storytelling, like impactful campaigns and videos versus... Yeah. No one has ever stood out by standing... Yeah. 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 You have like, and it doesn't mean you abandon everything else. That's a beautiful, the one beautiful thing about digital is that you can run in parallel two different campaigns for sure. But I think that like, absolutely you should be doing something different than what is the status quo. Yeah. That has always been what's worked best for some of the biggest brands. Yeah. There's a, there's a company. um, I've seen this guy, Tom Shea Mm -hmm. on Twitter 
and he runs this company called Agile Media Group. Mm -hmm. So they're out of home. They they put ads on trucks. And yeah. have you seen this yeah. guy? And so, you know, one of the ads that he did the other day was for this company called Jolie Skincare, mm -hmm. yeah, which really does uh, shower heads. Shower, yes. shower heads. Yeah. Yep. And it was a dirty ass truck. And he just goes, this truck is uh, cleaner than your shower filter. Yes. <laughs> I was like, damn, bro. Like, it's because it's so... It's visual, it's yeah. memorable, it's not something that you're used to seeing, so there's a sense of novelty to it. And the really good outdoor advertising makes its way to social. Right. It does. Right. Similar to what you're saying, similar to Oatly, they just they just had a bunch of good mm -hmm. campaigns, I think in Paris or London, um, that again, they made their way to social. And if exactly. you could do that, like those are brands I remember. I can't, I can't tell you how many billboards I saw when I drove from Colorado to Texas that were not used. You know? Yeah. Like, that that's just a completely dead medium, which is still getting the same amount of impressions that it was before. Yeah. Right. Like people are still driving. No on algorithm roads. change, baby. <laughs> yeah, like people are on the road. Like, but you know, what's the innovation there? Like if you create a high, a super compelling piece of creative, mm -hmm. sure, maybe it's gonna take some thought and some skill, but like it could really help your brand stand out. For sure. And I think another thing that is another in addition to out of home is um five events. Yeah. And, you know, organic gatherings like I you, we were talking about run groups earlier. There is no larger run group than when Nike does an event here in town. Yeah, it is. Oh, my gosh. The last one I was at was like at least 400 or 500 wow. people. Yeah, it was massive. Yeah. And that was the what I th felt was so good with that. It's like not only, yeah, people some wear some other brands, but a lot of people do pull out their Nikes for it. But what I think was great about that live event was people had an extended period of time with an actual emotion and a feeling and connection to a brand. Yep. And you don't, you just can't get that same kind of thing through a screen. Yeah. I think you can tee up some storytelling through it, but I think that getting people to engage in person um, is a, a really special thing that it goes back to retail, right? Like creating the retail front. I, one thing I'm thinking about big time for, for marketing exam and it's just like, how do we, you know, we have an audience, we have eyeballs. How do we create the, the community feel? Like, are we, um, are we, is that our next layer of monetization? Are we actually building a, a Slack community that has a lot of in real life events, a lot mm -hmm. of in-person events, a lot of things that, you know, we're, we're going to a lodge and staying there for a week to talk about business, but it is, you know, 50 men or whatever, 50, 50 marketers coming. To, I don't know why I said yeah. that. Probably because it's 50 the bros in a cabin, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like thinking about that well, side of things. Well, it becomes a product that you then sell through, yeah. you know, like your brand is attached to, and it's also so easy to integrate with all the content throughout the year. So yeah. I think Vox does a good job of this. You know, yeah. a lot of their podcasts are talking about like their, their Vox, you know, gatherings, their, their festivals um, in the hybrid fitness world. Uh, the RMR team um, have a podcast called RMR Training. Um, and these, so it's Rich Ryan, Megan Jacoby, and Ryan Kent, the three, three of like some of the best uh, high rockers in the world. And they also do a uh, boot camp once a year. And that kind of becomes a product that through their connection, their following, they get to leverage and push against to sell as, as a thing. And it's this in-person thing. Like, are they going to draw all their audience to it? No way. But it is a product that I think good media has in today's world, which is creating that offline experience or offline um, engagement. Last question I have. Do you think Hyrox is going to take over CrossFit? Without question. Really? Why? Without question. I think that why Hyrox will pass, will, uh, pass CrossFit is because it is far more um, friendly to women. And it's like, I should say, less intimidating to women. Mm -hmm. So... I think CrossFit has only been able to grow so much because I think a lot of women feel very intimidated by the sport. And whereas High Rocks is, is not the same. It's much like, it's not as heavy on strength training as it is endurance. Interesting. So I think it take it like, it's also, it's easier to compete in. Like, I mean, there are a lot of people who were in the race that I was in where, you know, they, they're not, they're just getting into things and it's a really grueling race, but they're still able to finish it. I don't, I mean, there are a lot of CrossFit lifts. I couldn't even do one rep. Yeah. So it's like, well, pff, yeah, can't compete in that. Do you yeah. think it loses so, some of like the kind of like the, 
I want to say the alpha, that's the wrong word, but it is in entertaining to watch somebody power clean like 400 pounds. Right. Right. And you might, you're not going to get that in, in high rocks. I don't know, man. You watch a race with Hunter McIntyre. That guy is freaking monster. Is that the guy that Hunter Sheriff, that guy? Yes. Gotcha. I feel like CrossFit is a really like, you know, beefier sport maybe why are you looking at me in the eyes when you say <laughs> i don't know dude. <laughs> i definitely wasn't looking at you looked right at me like it's a beefier sport but i do think that like alienates some people um like it, there's a very specific like i don't know so maybe high rocks does have like a broader appeal yeah it, it they definitely i think it does um the thing that i find with high rocks is that there are a lot of really good high rocksers who were great runners yeah. So it is a sport where what, and this is where I think like they have, they have a better on-ramp by design, which is a runner can become a, a decent high rocks racer way faster than someone can become decent in, in CrossFit. Um, CrossFit, I mean, it just takes an immense amount of strength and immense amount of training that I think keeps a lot of people out of it. Well, Matt, dude, this has been incredible. I know we could go another 45 minutes shooting the shit, but <laughs> yeah. it's been incredible. We'll have to have, just make this a reoccurring thing. Yeah. Hey, I, back on I'm just down the road, man. Yeah, sure. so, absolutely. Appreciate uh, having you, man. Well, you know, plug yourself on social. Uh, I mean, obviously at Nice Kicks. Yeah, at Nice Kicks. <laughs> uh, I'm at Matt Halfhill. I'm pretty much only using Instagram now at this point. Yeah, so it's yeah. the best place to find me. Absolutely. And then as always, uh, if you do like this episode, if you like Sweat Equity, leave a review. Um, send us a screenshot and on the next episode where we don't have a fantastic guest like this, um, we'll give you a free growth playbook and, you know, tell you how we grow your business. So uh, send us a screenshot at, at Brian underscore Bloom. I think that's it uh, on Instagram and Twitter. And then Alex, where can they find you? Yeah. And then hit me at Alex Garcia underscore ATX. And that's the same on all the channels. And then if you like Sweat Equity, make sure to subscribe on YouTube uh, at Sweat Equity Pod. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Please leave a review if you can. Um, we'll catch you all next week.